Well, we're going to begin this morning in Ezekiel chapter 28. We're going to be talking about spiritual warfare. So let, let me say kind of at the outset that I'm not looking forward to about two-thirds of this message because most of it, that two-thirds is devoted to Satan, to his nature, to his identity, to his work, to his sin. Um, I, I even have this, uh, th- this uh, inclination not to capitalize Satan when I'm writing a manuscript because I don't want to give anything to him at all. Um, but the, the, the last third of the message when we get to Ephesians chapter 6 is, is why we're here. It's the, the nature of spiritual warfare and the basis of spiritual warfare. And in, in order to be well equipped and in order to carry out spiritual warfare, we have to understand who it is we're engaged in warfare against and why and what he is like and, and what he does. So let's ask the Lord's blessing and then we'll, we'll look here. Father, we ask that as we uh, dive into this very serious subject that you would give us wisdom and give us clarity within your word. By the nature of the, the, the message today, we're covering a lot of territory in a, a short amount of time. So would you help us to retain the, the high points of what we need to know And Lord, you ask us the questions and bring us back to these scriptures this week to dive in and and gain even more detail. (coughs) We ask also that you would encourage us ultimately with what we see and with what we learned this morning. We thank you for this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, we're doing this because as, as... we move forward in Hebrews chapter 1, we found that Jesus is being compared to the angels. As Jesus is being distinguished from angels in his nature, in his identity, in his work, in his self-sufficiency, in every aspect of, of who he is. And so last week we, we talked about angels themselves. The sermon was called Angels 101 and just kind of did a, a very... Brief overview, 40 minutes is not enough to to cover this. When I was in seminary, I had an entire semester on angelology and Satanology and demonology. There there is a vast amount in scripture to try and and take in. Um, It just seems silly to me to spend that time talking about angels and not talk about the reality of the demonic realm and the satanic realm and and uh, how we come to grips with Satan and his works. So we're going to begin by just understanding Satan's nature. In Ezekiel chapter 28, beginning at verse 11, I guess, again the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, and, and if you'll pause for a moment, We've got several chapters in the book of Ezekiel that are directed as a rebuke against the kingdom of Tyre and the king of Tyre. And these rebukes increase in intensity until the point that we reach in in the passage today where it becomes very clear that we're no longer talking about a mere human being. And so scholars for a long time have come to believe that 
while the king of Tyre is the one being addressed, Satan is the one who is actually meant. Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. So he's a created being. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. Satan is a created being. And the description here in verse 13 is the description of of a a splendid, glorious being. Many of these stones are are used to describe the the temple in the the new city Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21. These are, are, it's just an incredible picture that we're being given. A wonderful picture of a glorious being. But let me point a couple things out. As we've seen, he's a created being. He is not God. He is not self-existent. The other thing is that it says, on the day that you were created, these things, these coverings, these adornments were prepared for you. So they are unearned gifts. Satan, in his original created state, which was sinless and blameless, was glorious in his appearance, not because of him, but because God granted him that adornment. God created Satan glorious because it was his desire to do that. And when he was created, he wasn't Satan. Satan means accuser or slanderer. That's what he becomes. Verse 14 says, You were the anointed cherub who covers. The sense there is that he is among the highest angels and perhaps the highest angel. And I placed you there. So God is sovereign. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness is found in you. We don't have an exact time frame for the creation of the angels. The angels were there when God created the heavens and the earth. So they're created prior to the creation of man, prior to the creation of the earth at least. They were probably God's first creation prior to the physical universe. But on day six, when God says, behold, everything is very good, Satan, this highest cherub, is still holy. God would not have pronounced everything very good if a third of the angels had at that point begun their sin and their rebellion against him. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created, until unrighteousness was found in you. Now, how did that happen? By the abundance of your trade, by the abundance of your doings, your actions, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. So where does Satan's sin come from? It comes from his own heart. It comes from his, his, his own uh, internal thinking processes. I don't know exactly how angels are constructed. Uh, people are... are body, soul, mind, and strength. I don't know if angels, how they're constructed in that way. Satan's sin was not something given to him by God. His glorious nature was, his adornment was, his high position was, but his sin comes from himself. 
Therefore, verse 16 continues, Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. So the judgment against Satan was immediate and unrelenting and irreversible. There is no redemption for Satan or for any fallen angels. Jesus never took on the, the nature, the form of an angel in order to die for them. So Satan's nature is of a created being, one created in incredible glory who possessed will and personality and who chose to sin. What specifically is that sin? Let's turn, if you go to the left, go to Isaiah chapter 14. And we come to a similar passage in Isaiah. Uh, This time it's a, a rebuke against the king of Babylon. And again, the intensity of it builds until we're no longer speaking to a mere man, we're speaking to Satan, scholars believe. And so in verse 12 we read, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. Star of the morning is translated as Lucifer in the King James Version. Um, it's not the, it's not, it's Lucifer in Latin, morning star. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. And here's the explanation. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. That's a reference to the angels. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So ultimately, Satan says, in in view of all of his beauty, in view of all of his adornment, I will make myself God's equal. Well, he couldn't make himself anything. But now he's going to make himself God's equal. This is the very promise that he makes to Eve. He comes to Eve. He, he says to her, has God truly said you can't eat of any tree of the garden? And she says, no, we can eat of any tree of the garden. But God said, uh, you don't eat of that one or touch it because in the day that you do that, you'll die. And Satan says, you won't die. God doesn't want you to eat it because he knows that in the day you eat of it, you'll be like him. And that lie has been propagated ever since. And we see within Mormonism that Mormons believe that every Mormon man who obeys the four fundamentals of the gospel, that's faith, repentance, baptism by somebody holding the Aaronic priesthood and the laying on of hands according to the Melchizedekian priesthood, will become a god on his own planet and they get to reproduce this whole thing that's been going on. I, I heard an apologist this week says, say, properly speaking, there is no God in Mormonism because God is just a class of being. To say God is like saying human. And the Mormons believe that God and angels and people are the same sort of creature, just in more or less advanced states. On the other hand, we've got on the, on the 
quasi-Christian side, Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagen, Joyce Myers, T.D. Jakes, Benny Hinn, Bill Johnson of Bethel Church, and others teach that Christians are little gods. That horses have horses, dogs have dogs, cats have cats, and God's children are little gods. The reason that we should reject poverty is because God isn't poor. And the reason we should reject sickness is that God doesn't get sick. It's a heresy. Satan's temptations are still uh, largely based on the lie that we are the equal of God. Either we can become God, or we are little gods, or we have free will, and that free will stops God from doing what he wants so that we are really his equal, or we can be the God of our own lives. I know that you've heard people say, and and I hope that you've never said it, I don't know if I have, but if I have, shame on me, when Satan successfully tempts someone to say, well, my God would never, they have just made themselves the equal of God and said God has to function and, and, and behave according to my standards. That's all Satan wants. Well, as in... As we saw in Ezekiel, verse 15 here, Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. There's a judgment that is irreversible and irrevocable. And what's, what's fascinating is here it says in verse 16, Those who see you, and this is anticipating the day of judgment, those who seize you will gaze, see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble? who shook kingdoms. You see, all of Satan's glory, all of his magnificence was a gift from God. It was the adornment of God. It wasn't inherent within him. And having sinned against God, he's lost all of that. And while he is extraordinarily powerful, extraordinarily smart, extraordinarily wicked, to a degree we cannot begin to comprehend, Although we could say this, Satan is behind ultimately the abortion of tens of millions of babies in the United States alone since Roe v. Wade was passed, and it's not enough babies. There is no good in him. So he has lost every bit of adornment. But if the Lord brought him here as he really is and gave us the eyes to see as we will see him one day, we would look at him and wonder why we were so afraid. Because ultimately, he's toothless and powerless. Well, Satan's nature is as of a created being. Satan's sin was the sin of pride and ultimately insisting that he would be like God. What's Satan's goal? Keep going to the left in your Bible. Go to the little book or big book before Psalms. That's the book of Job. We know that Satan wants to be like God. We know that Satan wants to destroy everything God has done. When he comes against us, what is his goal? What is is it that he's trying to achieve? We, We learned some things in the first couple of chapters of Job. So just as a background, Job is a man who lived probably during the time of Abraham or even before. It's thought that the story of Job is the oldest human story told in the Bible. Um, after, the, after the story of Noah. He lived in a land named, named Uz. I'm not sure where that was. 
But verse 1 tells us what his character was. He was blameless, upright, fears, feared God, and turned away from evil. So in verse 6, there came a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, sons of God here being angels, and Satan also came among them. Remember, Satan is the Hebrew word, shaitan, which actually means accuser or slanderer. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And Satan answered him and lied from roaming around on the earth and walking around on it. I mean, he has been doing that, but there's more. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth. Have you come across him? The one who's blameless, the one who is upright, the one who fears God, the one who turns away from evil. And you're roaming and you're wandering him, wandering around. Have you, have you come across him? Well, verse 9, then, then Satan answered the Lord and says, does, does Job fear God for nothing? Does he do it for free? Have you not made a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. So there's an accusation here. Remember, Satan means accuser. Satan makes an accusation against God. You bought Job's worship. You've bought and paid for it. The only reason that he worships you is you've bought him off. Put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. That is what Satan wants every human being to do to God, is curse God to his face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Two things about Satan in that verse. It may not seem really significant, but I think that it is. First of all, God establishes limits for what Satan can do. Okay, all that he has is in your power, but you're not allowed to touch him. Now, Satan's a rebel. Satan is going to break the rules every single time. But there's absolutely no record that in this first attack he touched Job personally, that he caused Job's body to fail in any way. That does come next. If Satan could have, he would have. The Lord wouldn't let him. The second thing is Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Satan is not God. He is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at one time. He left here to go there to accuse Job before God, and then he left to come back. Well, as the story goes on in chapter 1, Job loses his property. He loses his children. Verse 20 says, Job arose after hearing the news of all of this terrible, terrible tragedy tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. So Satan was wrong. When, when Satan said, You touch him, you take away his possessions, he will curse you to your face, Satan was wrong. It's important we pay attention to that for a moment because people think that Satan knows everything. He doesn't. He doesn't know how you'll respond to a temptation. God does. God is your maker. He knows everything about you, past, present, and future. He knows it in detail that you'll never know. But Satan does not know what you'll do. And so when he says, this is going to happen, he gets it wrong. 
Chapter 2 says, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Same conversation, the Lord says to Satan, from where have you come? Satan says, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now, the the same first words, there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil, and he still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. In spite of everything Job has suffered, the loss of all of his possessions and the loss of his children, Job has held his integrity. And and part of me loves this introduction to Job. Because Job suffers because God was bragging on him. And when Job suffers and Satan comes back, God is able to say, you were wrong. He held fast to his integrity. And we know, of course, knowing the rest of Scripture, knowing the rest of of the story, that, that Job held fast because God held fast to him. Satan answered the Lord. Now we got a different answer. Skin for skin. Yes, a man will give all that he has for his life. Put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. Again, we have that as the the aim. Satan's aim is that we would curse God to his face. But what he says in verse 4, all that a man has he will give for his life is quite often true to some degree. It's quite often true to some degree that if, if if you threaten somebody's life, if you threaten their health... There's nothing that they won't do to protect themselves. Nothing that they won't do to defend themselves. Stories are told of of sailing ships that sank, and when bodies were recovered, they would find bodies with, with boot marks and bruises on their shoulders because other men were climbing on top of them trying to save themselves. This is part of the fallen, sinful human condition. That's one of the reasons Paul says in in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, you better be careful because if you keep nibbling and picking at each other, one day you might just devour each other. Satan wants Job to curse God to his face. That would be the revenge. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. Again, God limits his his actions. And Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and he smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He took a pot shirt, a piece of broken pottery to scrape those sores while he was sitting among the ashes. And then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. It's easy to give Job's wife a hard time. But she's lost everything too. And she's lost all of her children too. And now she's watching her husband suffer beyond description. And as far as she concerned, the, the best thing that could happen to Job would be death. Just die. But 
Obviously, her words, curse God and die, having been used already twice by Satan, he will curse you to your face, he will curse you to your face. She's already fallen for this temptation. There is no God. If there is a God, he's too weak to help you. If, or he's so vindictive and cruel, he's doing this to you. Curse him and die. Job says, shall we accept good from God and not accept adversity? In, this, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. God, or Satan wants us to curse God and die. Now, he could simply come to us and say, well, why don't you just curse God and die? But on the average day, we would, we would just scratch our heads and wonder what that's about. And so he comes at us in a, in a huge number of ways. We're going to get to Ephesians 6 in a minute. But in Ephesians 6, it talks about uh, taking up the shield of faith with, with which we can extinguish the flaming arrows, plural, of the enemy. If you remember those old movies, the Robin Hood movies or, or the Lord of the Rings movies where you've got the army, army advancing on a fortress and all of a sudden tens of thousands of arrows come out. That's the way Satan comes at us. He, he doesn't come respectfully, evenly matched, one-on-one. He comes out with, with a shotgun of approaches. Some people are afraid of hardship, so he tempts them with pleasure and comfort and quick success. He tells them they have a right to take care of themselves first. He tells them that they're islands and their behavior affects no one but themselves. He tells them that God wants them to be healthy and rich. And he tells them that material possessions are spiritual blessings. And also that when all of that falls apart, that person who believes this is what God wants decides God can't be trusted and curses God. Some people are afraid of the judgment of God, so Satan tells them there's no judgment to come. And many people believe that. He tells them that all religions are the same, that everyone worships the same God, that truth is relative, that as long as they're religious, how they live doesn't matter. And of course, they're going to come to a day of judgment, and he wants them to stand and curse God to his face because they fell for the lie. On the other hand, some people are deeply aware of their own sin and their own failure. And so he tells them that because they have failed, they're no longer useful in the kingdom. Or he tells them that their failure probably means they're no longer Christians. Probably because he doesn't want any certainty. He wants you uneasy. He wants you unsettled. He doesn't come to anyone and deliver any absolutes. He only delivers, well, could-be's. And it keeps you constantly guessing. He tells them that their weakness disqualifies them from serving. He tells them that because their life is hard, they will never matter in the kingdom of God. Or he tells them that because their life is hard, they're excused from being faithful. Also that when they stand before the Lord and they either face judgment for their their fallenness and their wickedness, or as Christians, they stand before the Lord and realized that their lives were misplaced. Even as Christians, they will curse God, which we won't, of course. Satan doesn't know what you will do tomorrow. He can only predict. He might have it right if you're predictable, 
but we can stand with the Lord. And of course, pride is the basic human sin. And so Satan tells people that they are their own God, that they're in control of their own lives, that they can reject the word of God because their wisdom and opinions are just as good. He tells them that their, their spiritual experiences are always good, always desired, and never need to be tested by the word of God. He tells them that their success is always due to their own superiority to their own hard work. He tells them that they don't need salvation, or if they do, that they can earn salvation by their good works and by their good intentions, or that it tells them that they don't need to forgive those who have hurt them and that they have the moral right to be angry and embittered. Also that we will curse God. He simply comes at us with a a, a flock of arrows. If one person comes at you on a battlefield and and you're equipped, you probably have a good chance of defending yourself. But if you're standing there and there are hundreds and hundreds of bowmen and they all shoot at you at one time, you can't deal with those arrows one at a time. So what is our protection? Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10. The apostle writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. We're not going to be strong in ourselves. We're not going to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We're not going to defend ourselves. We're going to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God. You'll find that phrase again in verse 13, the full armor of God. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Standing firm is repeated again in verse 13 and again in verse 14. So the aim of spiritual warfare is that we would stand firm and that we would stand firm against the schemes of the devil and against the schemes of the devil because our our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against what's in this world. It's not against the people of this world or the things of this world or the events or the situations of this world. Our battle is against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. These are all descriptions of demons and spiritual forces and spiritual powers that are coming against us all the time. Now, we have a terrible disadvantage because we can't see this battle taking place. We can deal with physical things. We can deal with physical enemies. We can lock doors. We can close windows. We can put up barricades. We can arm ourselves. We can can deal with things we can see. We can't see these things. So what do we do? Well, verse 13 tells us, So therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. So standing firm and resisting become equivalent terms. And I think we could say that resisting equals standing firm and, and standing firm against means waiting. 
We don't resist and stand firm so that we can advance. We cannot advance against the spiritual forces of wickedness. That's not our fight. That's not our battle. We're being attacked. Now, our job isn't to advance against Satan. Our job is to stand firm. So we see this in Romans chapter 8. Not only this, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. We are waiting for the completion of our redemption. That is the goal for us. The goal for us isn't crossing into Satan's territory and cleaning it out. The goal for us is crossing the finish line and being with Christ. The the attacks are coming to try and divert us off of that goal. And so take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything that you're commanded to do here, standing firm so that you aren't pushed back by the devil. Stand firm, therefore, verse 14 says, and then, and then Paul gives us six elements that define the full armor of God. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. This is God's truth. There, there's a very clever statement that says, well, all truth is God's truth. I've never heard anybody use all truth as God's truth to defend Scripture. They always use all, good, all truth as God's truth to add to Scripture. I, I heard, it, heard a man at a, at a pastor's conference a few years ago. In his opening session, he said, all, God, all truth is God's truth, right? And, and, and all these guys are kind of not sure what's going on. And he says, we know that the Myers-Briggs profile is true. So Myers-Briggs' profile is God's truth. It's as true as Scripture. I was gone the next morning. It was in Colorado. I couldn't leave that night. I was deeply disappointed. And he went on, by the way, to explain away Paul saying, if anyone changes the gospel, let him be anathema, let him be cursed from Galatians chapter 1. Well, that's because of Paul's IMD, no, not IMDB, TMJ, whatever that is. The, the Paul, whatever Paul's Myers-Briggs things was, well, that's why he spoke that way. So I'm, I'm done with that guy as a teacher. We stand in the truth, and God is truth. God's truth. We put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now there is an aspect of having a clean conscience. Having a clean conscience does help us as we stand against the devil. But ultimately what enables us to stand is not our righteousness, but the imputed righteousness of Christ. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we would become the righteousness of God in him. As, as you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and been saved by his grace, you have had Jesus' own righteousness credited to your account. That's the righteousness that you stand in. 
See, if you're standing in your own righteousness, Satan's going to come to you and say, so what about that thing that you did? And that thing that you did may, may have been okay, and you may say, well, that was righteous, and then he'll just point around it to something else, and he'll have you off your feet before you know it. But if he comes at you and says, you have no righteousness, and you say, I have the righteousness of Jesus himself imputed to me, he's done. He can't accuse the righteousness of Christ. He tried, remember, when Jesus resisted the temptations in the wilderness, and Jesus remained faithful, and Jesus resisted the temptation to call down angels in the garden, and Jesus hung on the cross, and the, the, the Jews even came to Jesus as he was coming down the cross and saying, yeah, he, he saved others, let him save himself. There is in that even a temptation to Jesus to say, don't do this, save yourself, and he refused to do that. You get the credit for all of that righteous life as you come before God. Don't think to yourself, but I should be able to stand on my own. Yeah, technically, but you can't, and nobody can. Adam and Eve were created sinless, and they couldn't. Only Jesus can, and he did, and he did for you. So that you get credit for his success. Verse 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, this is the gospel of Christ. Are you firm in the gospel? Do you know what the gospel is? Have you submitted your life to the gospel? Is it what, what, what grounds you? Not some high, elaborate spiritual teaching, but the simplicity of John Newton's words. I know two things he said on his deathbed. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. That's the gospel. Is that your foundation? Satan can't move you off of that foundation. Verse 16, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Even this faith, Ephesians 2.10 says, or 2.8 and 9 say, is a gift from God. And that shield of faith, by the way, remember you've got that flood of arrows coming at you like in Lord of the Rings, this this darkening the sky number of arrows. If you have to dodge the arrows, you're out of luck. If you have to deal with them and try and grab them one at a time, you're out of luck. But if you have a competent shield, Satan can fire arrows at you all day long and he can't get through. Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the helmet of salvation. Salvation is a, a, a gift from God. The helmets protect the head. Even in the ancient world, they understood that head wounds are mortal wounds. Well, Jesus says in John 6.37 that, he, uh, he, that whoever the Father gives to him will come to him, and whoever comes to him, he will never cast away. He says in John 10, My sheep hear my voice and they follow me, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father is greater than I, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So the salvation that you have is secure in Christ. It cannot be taken away from you. Remember, a huge amount of Satan's temptations, of Satan's attacks are, are you really a Christian? Are you doing the right thing? Have you saved yourself? Are you good enough? Are you holy enough? Are you praying enough? Are you giving enough? Are you doing all the right things? And we can start saying, no, I'm not doing the right things. I'm not living the right way. I'm not the right kind of person. And he begins to move us off. The helmet of salvation says, my salvation has never been about me. It's always been a gift of the grace of God. 
And we need to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, a sword sounds like a, an offensive weapon, but this isn't a long, broad sword. The word here describes a smaller defensive sword that would be used with the shield of faith. And when Satan says, if God loved you, he would, we have faith that says, no, I know that he loves me. And we come back and we parry with the word of God. And we keep those two as our defensive weapons. And then he says in verses 18 through 20, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am in an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. I think that prayer is the, the closing thing, uh, aspect of the armor of God. I think prayer is what ties it on. I think prayer is what binds it to us. I think prayer is where we step into it and we put it all on. And we pray for ourselves in the midst of this battle, in the midst of this raging attack, but we also pray for others. And when we pray for others, we, pray, we begin by praying for ourselves, that's fine. When we pray for others, there's a reminder that we're not the only ones on the battlefield. We're reminded that this isn't personal. It, it, it really is not personal Satan against you. It is personal Satan against God coming at you, trying to get to God so that you would curse God to his face. But it, it's not personal. You're not being uniquely chosen out by the demonic realm. As God's creation, you're hated. So pray for yourself, but pray for others as well. And pray for the proclamation of the word. Pray that the kingdom of God would advance and would flourish. It's almost like Paul says, the only thing that you've managed to do for self-protection is dig a hole and bury yourself in it on the battlefield. And now you're immobilized. You're not standing. So get back on your feet. Gird yourself with truth. Breastplate of righteousness. Shod your feet with the, the gospel of peace. Put on the helmet of salvation. Take up the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, and pray. Pray for those who are around you in the battle. Pray for yourself as you're in the battle. And pray as God goes to work, as God continues to resist and cast down the enemy realm, that God's victory would be complete. And by the way, Satan has been sending human agents as bowmen against you. The advancement of the gospel, think about this now, the advancement of the gospel as an ambassador proclaiming it boldly means getting within earshot of those bowmen and calling out the promise of redemption and the promise of forgiveness through the gospel. The only way to share Christ with somebody is to get close enough for them to hurt you. And it's just easy not to do that. Paul says, I need you to pray for me. Paul did some really amazing things, but he says, I need you to pray that I would speak it boldly. It's interesting, he doesn't say to make known with clarity. He doesn't say that I would make known with creativity. He doesn't say that I would 
be able to, to succeed in this. It's that I would be bold because Paul was under constant attack to back down, to quiet down, to compromise, to, to reduce the intensity of what he was doing. To move further away from the bowmen who are trying to kill him. But it's, it's those very enemies of God that we proclaim the gospel to. So pray for yourself, pray for others. Pray that the kingdom would advance. Satan is real. Satan is a real enemy. There's no question about it. Highest of God's created angels. I think maybe Satan uh, fell in sin and said he would be like the Most High after he observed God make man in his own image. And he realized that this, this puny thing this puny couple made out of dirt were created with a glory he would never bear being made in the image of God. And he said, I'll be like God. And when he fell, we became the primary target of his rage so that we would curse God. He can't win. I read the end of the book. We win in the end. Jesus wins in the end. God has provided a means for us to stand firm in our faith. Not to retreat, not to advance. And as we support one another, as we love one another, as we hold one another gently, as we refuse to engage in judgment against one another for getting winged by arrows, as we are quick to forgive others, quick to support as they're quick to forgive us and quick to support. We're strengthened. And we can move closer to the enemy and by God's grace see the rescue of those who are lost. Father, we thank you for the love that you have for us. Lord, I thank you for all of your creation. I thank you that you created the highest cherub, the cherub who covers for your glory, according to your pleasure, according to your will. I thank you, Lord, that you adorned him as no other angel was ever adorned. And Lord, I thank you that when he sinned against you and when he persuaded a third of the angels to join him in that rebellion, there was immediate judgment. And Lord, I thank you that your victory over him is absolutely sure. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, a helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His wrath and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal, but one little word shall fell him. And that word is Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, bless us as we go. Remind us of the truth of these words. Remind us of your victory. You're not struggling to see if you can win in the long run. You've already won. It's just playing itself out now. Teach us, Lord, and encourage us. And in your holy name we pray. Amen.